1: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alice Garner, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner about their new book, Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed Its Schools. The book is published by UNSW Press, and it asks why education in Australia is failing where we've gone wrong, and what we need to do to fix it. So quite an ambitious book, actually. And even though it's about um, the Australian education system, I think that anyone interested in education policy and equity in education, uh, different funding models, wherever you are in the world, will find this a really interesting and thought-provoking study. Um, Tom and Chris are both very experienced Australian educators who've really undertaken a a thorough and quite compelling study of a series of education reviews and attempts at reform that we know here under the name of David Gonski, or Gonski, the man who was appointed to to lead these reviews. And uh, so I'd like to welcome you to the show, Chris and Tom.
2: Thanks so much, Alice. Great to be here.
1: Uh, and I'm going to start off by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book together. So we might start with you, Tom.
2: Yeah, thanks, Alice. Well, I started teaching about 15 years ago, 2008, I think it was. And, you know, I think as is the experience for so many beginning teachers, it was pretty overwhelming and I was on a, a steep learning curve professionally, and uh, and and in a few years into my teaching career, along came this review of school funding, and I guess it was at a point in time where, as well as, you know, being on the wonderful learning curve that that your first years of teaching are, um, I was becoming increasingly aware of the systemic challenges that were making my job harder and that of my colleagues harder, and so. Uh, My experience was um, one in which I became increasingly involved in the teachers' union, and the union really did a marvellous job in my view of... um, Uh, soliciting submissions from schools around Australia. So there are about 6,000 public schools across Australia that made reviews, uh, made submissions to this review, telling telling these experts about what their experience on the ground was. And and to me, it felt like a, a really great process in terms of practitioners sharing their experience with policymakers in a way that could make a difference. So I got, I think, swept up in this process, both as a way to address the immediate educational challenges that, you know, I was experiencing in the classroom and I could see my colleagues were experiencing, but also it it seemed like a really great democratic process. Um, And so that's where my whole investment, I guess, in this attempt at school reform came from. And um, as part of that, I I read a very interesting book by a chap named Chris Bonner and started to follow um, the great work he was doing. And um, I've, I feel very lucky that I eventually got to know him and, and work with him on, on this book we're talking about now.
1: And just out of curiosity, have you continued to teach while, while working in this sort of policy analysis?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of teach three days a week and um, so I have a couple of days um, spare for writing and so on and um, I find it a really energising mix um, to be kind of in the classroom and um, having the very kind of visceral experience, I guess, or the immediate experience of of working with students and then then being able to step back.
1: Mm. Yeah. Great. And uh, just um, are you teaching in the ACT, is that right?
2: That's right. I teach okay. and we have a wonderful um, senior secondary system in the ACT where, um, for year 11s and 12s in their last couple of years of secondary education. Um, and the culture there is a kind of almost a halfway house to university. Students use our first names. They don't wear uniforms. Um, we treat them as young adults and generally speaking, um, students respond really well to that. Um, so it's a, it's a great culture in, in which to be teaching
1: and for overseas listeners um the act is the australian capital territory uh, where canberra the nation's capital is situated and to suddenly realized people may not know
2: <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> um, absolutely
1: yeah and actually you know what you mentioned about uh, features of the system in the ACT it's something we'll come back to is how things uh, differ from state to state and what that is meant for for this whole review and and reform kind of process um, thanks Tom maybe we'll we'll go to you now Chris what brought you to write this book
0: with Tom thanks Alice I started earlier than Tom teaching back in 1970 uh, that gives something away uh, and I taught in um, really disadvantaged schools in New South Wales, in the the middle of New South Wales. New South Wales is the biggest state, of course, and uh, the middle of New South Wales is a semi-desert. Significant Indigenous population in the school and in the town. And I also taught in quite advantaged schools when I became principal um, several decades later. But it's interesting because during my teaching career and my career as a principal, I could see momentous changes taking place in Australia's framework of schools and the public education system, which which was basically uh, the predominant system uh, in many respects, was under severe challenge from uh, publicly funded private schools. And this was changing the nature of the relationship between schools um, in ways that were um, having a huge impact. So I eventually became a school principal in Sydney and headed up the secondary principals group in New South Wales. And, uh, yes, I also contributed to the Gonski Review, put up a submission to the Gonski Review, gathering together my concerns about disadvantaged schools and how they seem to be becoming increasingly disadvantaged. Then when I retired... Uh, I had a really close look at a new set of data about schools on a website that a previous government had established, Um, not unlike the information available in, for example, the United Kingdom and New Zealand schools and so on, where parents could go to a school, go to this site and find out about schools that, uh, that they might be interested in. But as I got deep into this data behind the site, I found that the data was bearing out my concerns that I that had gathered over several decades before. And uh, that startled me because, you know, we could measure deterioration in the equity of Australia's schools over a period as little as one decade. And uh, so I published several uh, papers around that. And then, of course, Realised that uh, I need I need a <laughs> I need a younger partner in this project, and when Tom asked me to join him in this in this project, I, I willingly agreed. I'd written a couple of books before with uh, Jane Caro, who's a social commentator in in Australia, and uh, really enjoyed the experience, and and the. Writing with Tom has been a wonderful journey where it's, we've challenged each other's uh, views and challenged each other's assumptions and the book has evolved from that in ways that I, I really appreciate.
1: I'm curious to know in your co-authoring process, did you um, distribute chapters? Did you, how, you know, just briefly, how did you actually organise yourselves to write it together?
0: Gee, so, do you want to
2: get it? I'll, I'll have a go, yeah. I mean, the process um, in, in essence was that we divided up the chapters and worked on them independently and then synthesised it. But what was really interesting and challenging is that um, when it came to the, um, the, the point of synthesis and we were really committed to an overarching narrative, which only emerged over time, that's when the complexity of the process really came in and we had to really think hard about precisely what our position was and how, how we could try and effectively let, let our portrayal of events unfold over time, I guess.
1: Did you find that, I mean, part of the story of the book is all the little special side deals and compromises that had to be made or that were made, whether they had to be is another question perhaps. Uh, Did you find that in order to come to an agreement about, for example, the last section where you make some proposals, uh, did you have to make any side deals with each other?
0: (laughs) Oh, inevitably. Inevitably. But that's a good thing you know, because it's a learning experience. And we took two years, almost two years, to write the book. And, uh, and as you learn more and learn more about each other, you work out what sort of narrative will work and what sort of thesis around what sort of thesis should the book be driven. And uh, we reached that agreement and... Um, As a result, the book has a substantial sort of coherence. Uh, Quite surprising in a book where separate chapters are completely initially written by separate people. But it came came together really well.
1: Yeah, I agree. It didn't feel to me as though it was two different voices. It felt, yeah, I think you're right.
2: I think the experience was in in the way of a conversation that, um, yeah, we, we and, and I, I think you're right, Alice, to focus on our ultimate solutions because it does really force you to be quite precise about how you think things should work. And Chris and I, I think we did come to it with just different emphases and so on, but I feel, and <laughs> jump in if you disagree, Chris, but I feel like no, we've, got, no, 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 we've no, no, got a pretty similar similar point. Um, yeah, so so we didn't have to make any, you know, you know Really hard political
1: deals. (laughs) (laughs) Good to hear because, yes, as you'll no doubt tell us in this interview, some of those political deals are a a very uh, tricky part of this story. And so let's now perhaps go to thinking about the context in which these... um, reviews and reforms took place, what, what did and does the Australian education system look like in, in sort of broad brushstrokes for an international audience? What should they know?
2: Right, right. So, in Australia, education is the constitutional responsibility of state governments. But since 1969, the federal government has taken on an increasingly significant role in funding schools. And um, that largely is attributable to its greater revenue-raising powers and it's just got a greater capacity to help um, take on the burden of what is a very expensive undertaking funding all our schools. Um, And so that's the first layer of complexity in Australian education, the kind of somewhat confused uh, joint role of state and federal governments in, in, in kind of funding our schools. Um, but the second um, layer of complexity is even more important in my view. And that is in Australia, about two thirds of schools are public schools, one third are private schools, but all schools, private as well as public, receive very substantial taxpayer funding. Um, look, you know, And what I mean by that is that there are private schools that receive 95, even 100% of the funding that comparable public schools do. What makes them private, really, is not their level of taxpayer funding, it's that they are free to charge fees as they please, um, select which children they enrol, uh, and the combi- and for private schools, the combination of fee income and taxpayer funding mean that they ha- um, they typically enjoy substantial overall resource advantages when compared with public schools. So the result of that is that um, Australia has one of the most segregated school systems in the OECD. We have a, in ter- in, in the terms of the socioeconomic profile of students at a school, um, Australia is more segregated than a country like Russia or Tunisia. And, and what that tells us is that it is really the effect of education policies rather than Reflecting the nature of the broader society, um, and it 's what Chris and I call in the book the unlevel playing field," these very different um, settings and regulations on which our schools operate on and and we argue that it is really the crux of the of australia 's educational challenges um, because these concentrations of disadvantages in some free comprehensive schools. Uh, um, are making uh, learning um, and, and and building successful schools and school cultures very very difficult, and even even the very well intentioned um, and in many ways commendable reform initiatives that we we document over the last decade, we feel ultimately have not got to this fundamental problem. In Australia's very unique. Um, schooling arrangements
1: how did how did this come about given you know Australians often pride themselves uh on you know that the whole sort of fair go you know mate chip all that stuff <laughs> how did this come about this this quite un unlevel playing field
0: Look, it always it always was in a way, um, Alice. If you, even if you go back to the nineteenth century when public education was established, it really wasn't established as an inclusive system, because the Catholic school system uh, was then lost its public funding, and decided to proceed as a separate system entirely, funded by parental fees. So right from the word now, leaving aside whose fault that was. But right from the beginning, it was an unlevel playing field. So you'd have in a public system, I mean, at the extremes, you know, a a very rich atheist could go to a public school and not pay any fees at all and get a free education, whereas a poor Catholic, um, if they wanted to go to a Catholic school, they had to pay fees. So that that lopsidedness, that unlevel playing field, has characterised our system right from the very beginning. In many ways... And this is an oversimplification, but in many ways, what we have now with the the non-government sector substantially funded both privately and publicly, more so than the public sector, the playing field has tipped upside down. And of course, from the 1960s, we started funding um, non-government schools, especially the Catholic system, um, incrementally. There was no time in that period where, where there was a, a, a great meeting of minds to work out, hey, this is, uh, this is, this is the problem. What should we do? Uh, we just drifted into this system. Whereas in contrast, other countries made deliberate decisions to keep their state-funded system uh, fully inclusive, but also to embrace schools that uh, want that had a faith background. So they, they then became part of the state-provided system. And the best examples, of course, we, we uh, cite uh, uh, most of the Canadian provinces, but also uh, much of Europe. Netherlands, for instance, going back, well back into the 19th century. Britain, after the Second World War, New Zealand in the mid-1970s. So those... Those countries haven't faced the problems we have and I became very alert to this at conferences with international colleagues where you'd try to explain what the what the Australian system was like and and their jaw would drop. you know they, th- they sort of didn't believe that we, we would create such a system because it was so foreign to their experience of what worked and what they had done to solve the tensions between church schools and uh, and secular schools.
2: And, and just to add to that, uh, because I think it's a really, really important question, the first chapter of our book is called The Original Sin. And what we're trying to convey with that is the idea that Uh, decisions we made in the 19th century have really created a kind of path dependency and we're still experiencing the consequences. So, you know, what happens in Australia in in the 19th century is essentially everybody agrees that we need to have universal elementary education, but nobody can agree on the content of that education, specifically um, the nature of the religious content. Will it be uh, Anglican or, or Church of England or, or, or Roman Catholic, on the other hand, or um, or another form of kind of Protestantism, and so there's all sorts of attempts to negotiate um, this religious disagreement. There's, you know, royal commissions recommend a kind of a common Christianity will be taught in in kind of public schools, in the universal elementary schools, but that that only succeeds in, in in, in antagonising every religious uh, denomination. And so eventually we settle on this solution, which is that public schools will be free and secular. And um, and so, you know, there won't be kind of a <clears throat> religion, to oversimplify it a bit, but that religion won't be taught in public schools. And at the same time, we governments withdrew the funding, the state aid that had been previously provided to the the church schools that had existed. And and so it was that inability to work out a compromise about how we could provide universal education while while within a plurality, while having kind of a plurality of views about its contents, which led to this unfortunate settlement that meant that if you did want to choose a specific kind of religious ethos, then, uh, and you might not be well off at all, you might be very poor, um, then you had to contribute substantially out of your own pocket. And uh, yeah, and then that led to a great deal of ill will that dominated Australian politics through throughout much of the first half of the 20th century.
1: There's an interesting um, moment that you talk about in the post-war period, and I hadn't really thought about this, but um, that that placed particular pressure on the Catholic system um, that had been relying on on parental fees um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about what happened in that post-war period that kind of pushed things in a new direction
0: yes it's it's um, much to do with the migration to Australia after the second world war when the significant Number of migrants from southern Europe, Catholic countries came to Australia and and they wanted to go to a Catholic school. Now these the Catholic schools are schools that relied on basically the the free uh, uh, labor of of nuns and brothers, and they were uh, increasingly, Unable to to staff schools uh, that were that were rapidly growing. You know, there's this this is old saying, "As full as a Catholic school," um, uh, that would resonate around in in the 1950s. And of course, by the end of the 1950s, it had reached crisis point. Really, uh, the Catholic schools were basically um, weren't able to function with anything less than very very large class sizes, and of course, they had to pay lay teachers to staff their schools, their increasingly growing schools. And it reached a crisis point, of course, symbolically it reached crisis point in Goulburn in New South Wales, a town where the, the uh, local Catholic uh, church hierarchy and laity decided, look, this, it's gone too far, we can't, we can't cope with this. So they decide to send all their, uh, in a masterstroke, uh, they decided to send all their kids to the local government schools and of course, the uh, government school authorities, the state government authority, New South Wales Department, recoiled in horror because I thought, you know, it can't, it can't. If this happens around the country, around the state, it won't be able to afford the extra costs that uh, that would accrue. And this, and this began um, uh, this in symbolic ways. This began the the dribbling out of funding to non-government schools in processes that didn't weren 't accompanied by any serious thought or serious organization about how these growing number of funded private schools might relate to the sector that by law had to be available to every student from every family in every part of in every part of the country in every circumstance, so we ended up having this dual system that um, had built in the seeds of its own um, uh, its own failure and that failure has continued
1: and so once once some funding had um been granted now this is by the commonwealth government for the catholic schools that sort of opened up opportunities uh for schools that were less needy right for the, the for sort of independent schools who could then make an argument that if they're being funded, why not us? I'm not sure if I'm characterising that correctly. But um, in a sense, it sort of, yeah, had a a series of consequences that continued to to blossom or fester, depending on your point of view. Um, So I'm interested, you you mentioned the Goulburn story and that sort of political masterstroke of sort of closing the schools and sending the kids to the, the local government schools. That story of a kind of developing uh, lobby group is is crucial in your book. Perhaps you could tell me a little bit about the development of uh, private school lobbying over the ensuing decades.
0: Yes, it, I, I hope Tom will tell the story, but I'll start by saying a previous Australian Prime Minister looking at the Growing alliance between the Catholic, the poor Catholic system, and the and the relatively rich Protestant system, called it as the as the union of God and man, But I'll let tell Tom, Tom tell the story because he tells this one well.
2: And it does um, it does kind of follow right from the start of the introduction of of universal education in Australia because you know, the difficulties had always been characterised by sectarian tensions between Protestants and Catholics, for which it was, you know, generally English and more affluent Protestants and Irish and more working class Catholics, joined later by, you know, uh, Italians and, and other, pe- uh, other immigrant populations. And so... The the politics of education had always been defined in Australia, had been defined by that in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century. What happens really in the 1960s is that those warring factions decide that their kind of common material aspirations are more important than their sectarian differences. And they form a a coalition of convenience to lobby for, for state aid, for at least some public subsidies from the government and that coalition has um stayed kind of in place um to this day and it's really critical because um firstly it creates a um a breadth um that that they wouldn't otherwise have and so there's just a as a political force it's um, been very significant but it also means that um in a way, the um, the very we have these very uh, high fee, exclusive, generally Protestant schools, and um, which ha- have enjoyed increasing taxpayer support over the last half century. And whenever that's questioned, they kind of have this; um, they're able to hide behind, in a sense, the the case that is made for the more disadvantaged, generally Catholic. Non government schools. It's like uh, it, it's not necessarily logical, but um, they're able to, in public discourse, they're able to present um, a question to their funding and the arrangements that concern them as a challenge to non government schools in general, some of which are in much more disadvantaged and under resourced circumstances.
1: So maybe let's now go to Gonski, um, and perhaps you could explain who Gonski was and what the review was that he was um, named to to lead.
2: Oh, I'll jump in here. Um, okay. So yes. um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so what happens is is Labor comes to government in um, late 2007, the, the Australian Labor Party, our kind of left of centre party here. And it comes with a promise to keep the current funding arrangements that had been put in place by the Conservative government intact um, for the time being, but to conduct a review uh, in the long term. And so it was a, the politics of um, for the Labor Party were were very difficult and this was an attempt to um do nothing immediately, but something eventually. And, and that that is reflected in the choice of um, this very interesting figure, David Gonski, to lead the school funding review when eventually it takes place. He is um, uh, the former chair of um, one of the most exclusive private schools in Australia, Sydney Grammar. He is, uh, at the time, he'd been the chair of the Australian Stock Exchange and Coca-Cola Amatil and you name it, he was kind of, a, um, you know, one of the most uh, the leading business figures in the country. So he really represents, um, uh, in a way, uh, a protection for the Labor government that um, they're going to have this review to examine school funding arrangements, but it's not going to be um, an attack on private schools. And... Uh, but at the same time, Gonski is a great philanthropist, and he's a, a man who has you know, a genuine concern for um, the less less well off and the disadvantaged, and um, and that's going to be reflected in the character of um, the recommendations that that he and his panel make. Uh, and I can I can ju- kind of sum up what they what they recommend in a nutshell after a comprehensive you know, 18 month review process. What the Gonski review really says is that the way we need to fund our schools is on a needs basis. And so if we start with every student gets kind of a baseline per student amount, and then we recognize the um, costs uh, associated with um, supporting students who experience various kinds of educational disadvantage, whether it's from low socioeconomic status backgrounds, indigeneity, low English proficiency, disability, or um, being in a rural or remote location, those students will receive funding loadings on top of the baseline amount. And so um, we, we then have a kind of a recurrent funding formula that is going to respond to um, the educational tasks schools face and help address what, was, what were already significant signs of a long tail of underperformance in Australian schools uh, and a growing gap between um, more privileged children and, um, and their disadvantaged peers.
1: Actually, I'll just jump in there, Tom. So I should have asked in between, and, and in a sense you've just answered that, but why the review happened when it did? Why did the, the Labor government um, decide to institute the review? And that data you mentioned, perhaps you could mention a little bit about some reactions to the kind of international data that was coming out about Australia preceding that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So just just to kind of, in terms of where the review came from, and I have talked about that, but I suppose um, uh, Australians will be very familiar with the, the previous election in 2004. The Labor opposition had then taken a new school funding policy to the, the election, and it was widely known as Latham's hit list after our, our then opposition leader because it proposed taking funding off some of our wealthiest private schools and redistributing it to largely the poor private schools. So it was a very sore point for the opposition party and that reflects how controversial this topic is in Australia as it is in, in many, many countries. And so it was always, uh, the review came from a place of trying to achieve progress um, in a very, very um, contentious way. Um, political space uh, a, a, and then as the review was getting underway we received the results of the 2009 round of PISA tests and um, it really underscored the kind of the, 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 the size of the the task that the review faced if it was going to um, improve educational outcomes because what that was saying is that there was about three years of learning uh, separating our most advantaged students and our most disadvantaged students. And it was showing that Australian students, even in 2009, were underperforming their peers in 2000, that we were really declining across um, reading uh, and uh, literacy and numeracy. And, and, uh, and that, that of course is, you know, that was one round of PISA, but, and you could be sceptical, but it's just been confirmed um, again and again in um, subsequent PISA tests. Um, so, Australia is, seems to really be going backwards in terms of the way we're serving our young people in our schools.
0: So, so I think you can add to that. So, I just want to, yeah. you, you I mean, this, uh, our framework of schools had reached a point of unsustainability. Um, and you could trace this back to a previous report, the Carmel Review in the nineteen seventies, and efforts made by the Labour, the Hawke Labour government in the nineteen eighties, to restore some some semblance of organisation and uh, rationality to the way the system was evolving. And certainly, immediately prior to the Gonski Review, in those few years, there was a lot of controversy about funding systems, and. The, the fact that uh, while the system was allegedly based on funding on need, it was subsequently corrupted by the then coalition government to make sure that uh, no school would lose any money at all in whatever changes came. And that was clearly not workable if you wanted to establish an equity based system to have that sort of uh, caveat that nobody was to lose out. And that was that was amongst the tensions that uh, eventually led, led to the Gonski review.
1: Once the the review was out and the recommendations had been made, perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit about the political fallout and what needed to happen if it were to be if it were to survive in any form. <clears throat>
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's was, there's was a number of interesting elements in this, Alice. I mean, first of all, when the Gonski review was first published in 2012, the start of 2012, it received a very positive response. And um, what was what was seemed different was that it was welcomed by representatives of all the school sectors, um, if cautiously, if qualified. Um, it was a break with um, what had been, um, you know, unremitting unremitting disagreement, I guess, over previous de- decades. So it seemed like a breakthrough in that sense. And then we have, um, even though... The conservative opposition at a federal level kind of opposes this report. The, some of the conservative state governments start to um, express support for it, most notably in our largest state, New South Wales, where um, very interesting education minister who represents a, um, a rural electorate um, uh, with, with a lot of disadvantaged schools Really defies um, uh, many on his side of politics to um, full, full-throatedly um, express support for this report. So the Gonski felt like a breakthrough, um, and, and what kind of added to this, I guess, and this is you know, my, you know something I was involved in, have a personal perspective on. But um, the, the public school teachers' union. Um, invests a lot of resources in developing a a very significant public campaign um, in support of um, the implementation of Gonski's needs-based funding system. And this really, you know, um, I think uh, engages particularly educators across the country, educators and parents, and develops into a kind of a medium-sized social movement. So um, this, this, Kind of public policy review has become something of a household name, and um, a, and so we have these developments. Uh, at in the meantime, the 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 labor government is treading cautiously, partly because we're dealing with the wake of the the global financial crisis, and um, it's um, facing a whole lot of fiscal challenges. Um, and uh, but it eventually does does commit to implementing at least the essence of the report while dropping some important recommendations. And and so it really becomes when when our next federal election in Australia in um, in the last half of 2013 arrives, uh, it's going to be a major point of difference um, between the Conservatives and and the, the then Labor government.
0: And then in the meantime, of course, the, what was happening is that the non-government school peak groups and advocates were, were pressuring negotiating, working behind the scenes to make sure that what eventuated out of the Gonski rec, uh, recommendations would not leave any private school worse off. This no school should lose a dollar um, a dictum which really... It goes right back several decades and has been one of the biggest barriers to achieving equity in schools. And of course, what Gonski had to do was to recommend enough funding to go out to schools to enable the the most needy students and and the, the poorest schools to catch up over a period of time, without taking money away from schools that are already well resourced. And that that uh, requirement has had a stranglehold on the funding as it rolled out since the Gonski review and is still problematic today. And we should say
2: that uh, they succeeded in in late 2012. uh, Then Prime Minister Gillard, who was facing a myriad of challenges, um, relented, and not only um, guaranteed that no school would lose a dollar, guaranteed that even schools that were overfunded under Gonski's new formula would receive 3% funding increases every year.
1: It's, yes, I remember <laughs> this happening and reading about it in the paper at the time and and um, as, yeah, as a product of, of government schools and a parent in government schools and a teacher in government schools, finding it really hard to make sense of how, how this could be allowed to go through. I understand from your book that it was quite a battle uh, within Cabinet um, to, to even... You know get as far as they did that there was actually quite quite some resistance within the labour party itself to some of these moves and um I, I guess you know yeah the book it seemed to me it made it made it very apparent how difficult politically it was to get any traction and to to do to make genuine reform happen
2: um I was just going to say, I mean, one of, the part, one of the dynamics at play was that the then Labor government were caught between two theories of change. On the one hand, they could see the case for a fair funding system and delivering resources to disadvantaged schools. But on the other hand, they really embraced a kind of choice and competition agenda. And, um, you know, the creation of the the My school website that um, Chris alluded to earlier, this website that shows the results that different schools are producing and allows parents to compare and contrast and vote with their feet well that 's going to keep schools and teachers on their toes and it 's going to drive overall outco- um, improvements in outcomes in the long term. That was definitely something that many in the labor government were invested in, and of course, as much as you 're persuaded by that theory of change well it 's a lot cheaper than um, you know, making a big investment in disadvantaged school communities. And so, you know, when you're facing fiscal challenges, I think it was tempting for many inside the Labor government to fall back on the idea, look, we just need to generate more competition, marketise education, maybe some performance bonuses for, for good teachers, that kind of thing. Um, these kind of measures, much cheaper, and that's what will really drive improvement
1: just picking up on the, the whole question of choice and competition um, at one point in the in the book uh, you talk about um, what you call the sense a sensitive ecosystem of, of schools and um, what these sort of funding inequities mean for those ecosystems perhaps Chris could you talk a little bit to that
0: yeah look the, the system of choice and competition in Australia um, is basically serves to drive enrolments between schools that are already quite advantaged and the schools which predominantly enrol the strugglers. And that creates a new a new impetus for um, changing schools. And what we've had in the last decade especially, we've had a drift of enrolments from low SES schools to high SES, SES schools, almost regardless of sector and and the one main reason for that is, is something that the Gonski review pointed to quite clearly is that when you have a school with with a significant number of uh, disadvantaged students it does have a collective impact on the achievement of the school overall this what what they called what we call the, the peer impact or the peer effect on on student achievement and Gonski identified this as a, as a critical ingredient of the problems of, of equity and achievement in Australia's schools. But basically, while, he clearly, while the panel clearly identified that, they didn't really, apart from funding the needy schools, which, as we know, didn't happen as intended, they didn't do anything else to change that structure. So it's meant since then, of course, that competition, driving the aspirant and the more affluent up to the higher SES schools has left the strugglers literally in a school in a school of their own, you know, with other strugglers, uh, characterised by a number of demographic features, as we know, indigeneity, uh, non-English speaking background, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that has, the, the effect of that is very measurable since 2012, and we devote a whole chapter to looking at that, spelling it out, and, uh, and coming up with the implications before we go on to the solutions.
1: Yes, and I know your solutions are going to be quite relevant to, to what you were just talking about. Um, I can see we've got a little bit more time. So before we get to your solutions, perhaps you could talk a little bit more about, and I know there were several stages. There's even a you know Gonski Mark II. So um, we, maybe we haven't got time to go into that fully because we can encourage listeners to read the book and 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 find this out but i think it would be worth hearing a little bit about the extent to which the reforms uh, that were put through did or didn't make a difference and and there there are some parts of yeah. the book where you compare the status of certain schools, you know, uh, before and after. Um, what What are some of the findings there?
0: Sure, sure. It, it, it's interesting that that what became Gonski Mark II was a clear indication that what was established in 2012-13 was clearly not sustainable and something had to be done. And the unsustainability is reflected in the disproportionate amount of money going to the schools that already had quite well resourced and less going to those that weren't. But um, as I say, this was in parallel. The other thing that Julia Gillard, the Prime Minister in 2012, established, of course, was the Moscow website. And it's fascinating because the trends since 2012 could even be observed or measured in every community by parents with a a computer uh, and and logging onto this website. We can look at the levels of student achievement. We can relate these to the levels of uh, socio-educational advantage, of enrolment at different schools. So it became harder to hide the problem. And so in the 10 years, for example, since the Gonski Review reported, We're seeing high SES schools growing and accumulating a larger proportion of advantaged kids. We're seeing low SES schools basically stagnant in their size, but they are accumulating a larger proportion of strugglers. So those socio-educational gaps between the schools are rising. And, of course, at the very same time, we're seeing Australia's international standing Decline as measured by PISA and other international measures. And also, uh, the gaps are increasing as measured not only by NAPLAN, but by Year 12 end-of-school achievement levels. And we've done that work uh, in three states, New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland. And the trends are the same. Advantaged kids are flocking towards high SES schools and increasing their achievement profile, which means that the schools at the bottom of the heap have a huge amount of trouble uh, competing (laughs) in that choice and competition marketplace that everyone at one stage, I don't know if they believe it anymore, everyone believes is allegedly supposed to increase overall achievement. It doesn't. It just increases the gaps.
1: Now, you you mentioned a few cases where schools did get uh, extra funding, almost uh, as you know, as an exception, schools that were genuinely needy, uh, that demonstrated that major changes could be made with that extra funding, um, and that that kind of gave the lie to some claims by a, a former minister for education uh, on in in one of the conservative governments that that money. Didn't actually make any difference. Uh, I was quite interested in that. You, you, you unpacked that sort of contradiction in a few spots. Perhaps um, you could just talk about that a little bit before we go on to possible measures.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, let, let me ask, answer that and I'll respond to that in two steps. I, I think, first of all, what we've done since the Gonski review is the opposite of what it recommended, where it recommended needs-based funding and increasing funding to disadvantaged schools. In fact, funding has increased at a much faster rate to the the non-government sectors, which enroll a much more privileged group of students. And we, we saw that, you know, we see that in the book. We, we look at a place like <clears throat> Bendigo in, in Victoria, a, a regional town, where the, the review panel visited a Catholic school, a public school and an independent school. And even 10 years ago, the Catholic school the panel visited received more taxpayer funding than the, the nearby public school it visited. And, um, you know, and, and then the independent school, courtesy of very generous um, public funding, had more total resources than than both the other schools. Uh, Ten years later, the the Catholic school has expanded its um, advantage in taxpayer funding alone, and and the independent school has also um, received a greater increase in public funding than the public school. Uh, So so we have not succeeded in improving student outcomes overall because we simply haven't um, dis- distributed funding on a needs basis, as Gonski recommended. But where it has happened in isolated cases, what schools have been able to do is they've been able to um, you know, bring in the specialised expert's whether it's you know uh, speech pathologists or numeracy and literacy coaches, um, to really attend to the individualised needs of disadvantaged and underperforming students, and um, and and you know and and grow a, a really positive school culture, and we do see in those instances uh, that that you know real um, improvement can be achieved. Unfortunately, the, uh, the conservative side of politics often uses um, the failure to improve outcomes because we haven't delivered needs-based funding, um, uh, they, they mobilise that as an argument against uh, the, the role of resourcing in improving. Yeah, because the funding of
0: Australian schools over the last decade has certainly increased, um, but there's um, uh, clearly it's the distribution of this funding that's really important. But it's not even not even only that; it's it's the, the structures in which these this money falls. I mean. If you look at, you know, we believe and we believe in school reform. We believe in doing school better. Tom and I, we're teachers and principals. So we've been in the, we are in the system we've been in the system. And if teachers walk away from the need to reform and do better with the money they get, then they're on in the wrong job. But it it just doesn't work if the structures um, don't serve the schools at the bottom of the heap, and certainly they don't if it encourages the most aspirant and affluent students to desert those schools and move further up the socio-educational ladder. So it's not just money, it's the structure of the whole system that is holding us back.
1: So let's think then uh, about what could be done and is it possible to? You know, is there, there's a sense, you know, with with in the book that Real change is very, very difficult to to make happen. What What's possible and what's ideal, and can the two be brought together?
2: So, so I think when we think about the obstacles to change, um, we need to remember that there's this kind of third element of the funding formula that that the Gonski review recommended, but that has actually been. Um, what 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 we've been trying to do in Australia for half a century, and that is, you know, on the one hand, there's this aspiration for needs based funding, but on the other hand, um, historically, uh, non schools uh, parents who want to send their kids to to non government schools um, are expected to pay out of their own pockets at least at least partly, um, and inevitably. Paying for a service engenders an expectation that um, the the payer will get something in return. So it's not all all altogether that surprising that private school parents expect their schools to be better resourced, to have you know more uh, smaller class sizes, flashier buildings, and and so on. Um, otherwise, they are, I think they ask themselves, why why are we paying while other people don't have to? So we think that to create the kind of political space for change, we actually need to think about offering full public funding to all um, schools, public and private alike. But there's a quid pro quo. In, respon- in, in return for full public funding, there are full public obligations. So that means that schools are free to the user and they are, um, you know, there's enrolment on an inclusive basis while allowing for the special ethos of the school. And, and this is a kind of proposal which um, I think when we're talking to an Australian audience, um, they, you, you know, it's, um, they're tem- they're, they might think we're a bit mad because it's so contrary to a whole set of assumptions we have about how public and private schools work. But of course, um, listeners overseas um, will, will recognise that this is um, internationally um, very, very common to um, to yeah have a have a, a common framework of publicly funded schools, which allow for a degree of choice as well.
1: Am I right in thinking that something similar was proposed uh, back in the either sixties or seventies when the Commonwealth funding of Catholic schools was first um, being discussed?
0: Well, yes, look, there's, there's, sorry, repeated, just... yeah, there's been repeated efforts to 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 make this a bit of a public agenda at various times, um, more so in the beginning of, of the early 2000s um, in, in Victoria and also uh, from some thinkers federally in Australia to establish a a common funded system which would include both secular and faith schools. Um, it's been, it, it hasn't gone very far in the past because uh, it's been reasonably easy to demonstrate that it would cost a lot of money to fund all schools in that way. But what's happened in the last decade is that the funding of non-government schools, the funding of private schools has risen so much that they are now funded Uh, almost the same as government schools enrolling similar students. And as a bit of an aside, we talked about the Goulburn and and the threat to send all the Catholic kids to the public schools in Goulburn back in 1962. If that happened now, the Australian taxpayer would save $2 million a year in recurrent funding. It, it would be, the taxpayer would be better off in so many cases to have all the kids in one, in, one school, in one school system, a system that would embrace both secular and religious schools. So it is now possible to do um, at a very, very low cost. So the debate has to change. But it's a matter of questioning those old assumptions, you know, that private schools save money and so on. We have to challenge those assumptions because they're no longer true and it involves sort of rethinking and recasting the debate.
1: So in a way you're saying that it's possible to propose this now in a way that it wasn't uh, before Commonwealth funding increased in the way that it did.
0: That's right, yes.
1: Okay. That's interesting. And, and I'm curious to know, too, uh, how, how this proposal so far, I know the book hasn't been out for very long, um, but what sort of a response you're getting to this proposal? <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Because, in a sense, the book came out at the 10th anniversary of the Gonski Review. And the media coverage of this great occasion has been basically that Gonski failed. Sorry, Gonski wasn't implemented correctly. Um, And hence, what we've got to do is to go back to the Gonski review and do it all again and do it properly. But, of course, we argue that the review itself was deficient in in so many ways because it was really a a renovation of our school system rather than a rebuild. And we argue for a rebuild. Now, that rebuild and recasting it into sort of um, uh, having uh, faith schools uh, completely funded by governments is is the debate that we've yet to have um, around Australia. And we're hoping that that debate takes off.
2: But there, there are promising signs. I mean, we talk in the book about how one of the smaller private school organisations, Christian Schools Australia, during the Gonski review process, actually as part of its submission, raised the possibility of a new zealand type arrangement where they did receive full public funding in in return for greater public public obligations and so that's you know but that was kind of raised but there was no partner really to join you know to hear that proposal and act on it then Um, we we put you know we discussed this with the head of the National Catholic Education Commission Jacinta Collins and she expressed an an open mind I'd say um, you know cautious and and so on but um, I think there it seems like there's potential for for conversation there as well. Um,
1: So it seems that the making international comparisons is an important part of this isn't it I mean it's it's being able to look beyond the kind of, I think you, you call it, baked-in assumptions um, yes, that yes. We, we, we've we all been, um, we've found it difficult to, to move beyond. Um, so I wonder to what extent, you know, Australians and Australian education policymakers uh, are willing to do that work to really look at. What happens overseas, and is it applicable here? And
0: what's involved in in making these sorts of changes? That that's a critical question. Um, and in the book, towards the end of the book, we actually have a section entitled "What if we do nothing?" And the "What if we do nothing" scenario is pretty scary, because if you project the 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 data that's accumulated over the last ten years, if you project that forward to the next ten years, we're going to end up with a substantial problem of underachieving kids crowded together in low SES schools, even more so than now, that that trend doesn't seem to be slowing in any way. So it it's almost as if we reach we have to reach another crisis point, um, as we did in the early two thousands. Another crisis point where the demand for action or the demand for more substantive change becomes much louder. It won't become loud in the, in the forthcoming federal election because we can foresee that there'll just be an auction, an auction a funding school funding auction between the government and the opposition federally, um, whereas we argue quite clearly that it's just not about money alone. It's about the basic structures that are doing us in.
2: And it is a a criticism we make of the Gonski review that it didn't um, explore international examples as fully as it could have. And it remained contained within these assumptions that, you know, private schools will continue to get lots of taxpayer funding, but charge fees as they wish and enroll students as they please. And um, so it is... It is something that I think is a challenge that we're presenting in the book. That we need to stop just assuming these things. Um, Realise that other countries have arrangements which are serving them better, and um, and and take take uh, uh, take note of those examples.
1: So just to be clear on how this would play out, in a sense, if you received public funding, you wouldn't be charging fees, and you would have. You would be required to enrol children in the local area. You, you wouldn't have the same sort of ability to um, turn people away uh, as is currently possible.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and yes. and you know, um, if you walked into a Catholic school in Ontario, that would be the exactly exactly the arrangement you find. Um, while you know that school would still be as Catholic as an Australian Catholic school, so um, we think there should be provisions to allow preference to enrol students according to your you know your special mission as a school, but not discriminating on the ability to pay fees <coughs> or academic tests and that kind of thing. Um, and and you know Australians think this is a, a this this is a proposal we don't normally think about, but. In a place like Canada or New Zealand, it's um, standard practice. We can do this.
1: And I suppose there's, uh, and one other question then, if there were was a school that was uh, determined to keep going but didn't want to receive any public funding, would there be room for such a school to exist but yes. it would rely entirely on
0: fees, parental yes. fees? Yes. Yes that's right they they would be called they would be called private schools <laughs> in the yes. true, you know and i mean in most o e c d countries the fully private sector is anything between about four and seven percent of enrolments in countries like new zealand and uh uh britain and so on and, and and they would revert to that status and and have quite a great deal of latitude in who they enroll but the schools accepting government funding must operate under the same, must be contracted to operate under the same conditions that government schools operate but, of course, would be allowed to retain their special character, be it faith or whatever.
1: So I suppose then the, the big questions, and we won't go into them here, but just flagging them would be about um, curriculum and uh, other questions that might relate to sort of um, Equity and equal opportunity, you know, some of those thorny issues that, that are discussed often about, you know, what what control do religious schools have over who they can enrol and te- who, which teachers
2: can and can't work there and so forth. Yeah, that is the conversation we have to have. But we, we know there are international examples that can show us how to kind of balance um, equity and choice. And the reality is that we already do publicly fund these schools almost to 100% almost fully so we're, we you know we will continue muddling our way through inevitably one way or the other
1: uh, yeah i think what what this brings home is that we probably shouldn't talk about government and non-government schools here <laughs> i mean
0: that... yeah, well, in financial <laughs> terms they're all public schools yes <laughs> the sense, at one level
1: yeah i <laughs> really? think that that is you know and and uh, yeah i think that comes through very clearly Um, well, look, I think we, we might, uh, finish off here because I think we've covered a lot, but there's still so much more in this book for, for listeners to, to, uh, explore. And I'm just wondering if you have any last thoughts or things that you would have liked to, to talk about that we
2: haven't touched on. Wow. I think we've done, we've done pretty well. Um, Uh, And and I think I'm I'm really glad that we got to the point where I think recognising that Australia has very unique um, school funding arrangements um, and that they really don't have to, that we've got lots of international examples which show us that we don't have to do things the way we have for the last half century and um, there's other countries we can learn from. That's the main thing.
0: Chris? Yes, ditto to that, ditto to that. You know, in the book, we create these two students who go through their school years in the same period as, uh, over which the Gonski Review was allegedly implemented and it they came to different ends. One was a kid with certain home and family advantages and the other wasn't. And, and the different ends they came to... reflected right around the country and kids going to school now we would like to see them go through their school years in a far more equitable system not only they benefit but we all do too
1: yes i think that's the thing for us all to keep remembering that education is just part of a much larger uh kind of i mean there are so many elements that it ties into in the broader society and and economy and that it doesn't exist in a vacuum. (laughs) Yeah, look, um, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for making time to to tell us about your book. Um,
2: It's been been wonderful to chat, Alice. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Alice.
1: (laughs) Great. And, um, well, I'll say goodbye, but uh, we look forward to seeing what you come up with next.
2: All the best. See you later. Thanks. (laughs)